at the end of the day, because what happens to one directly affects another, um, if we don't help those who are um, who have less resources be able to fight this coronavirus, we will not be able to stop the community spread. We are for another week the coronavirus shuffle. Uh, where we where we just are indoors and trapped. Yeah, no people, sports. Yeah, life is bleak. At least we don't have the virus. Uh, yeah, so, thank God for that. Um, but so far, so good. Welcome in to very upbeat <laughs> Alabama politics this week. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I don't know, man. It's uh, uh, it's it's just it's wearing on me, it's wearing on me, David. I can it's wearing. Tell. I can tell. I, I tell. you know, I like uh, you know, I like doing uh, the show and I like doing all the stuff, but uh, I mean, it's the same topics every week. It's the same depressing stuff every every day. Well, you know, just everywhere you turn on the news media landscape, that's the, nobody's talking about anything. Other no, than there's not. There's nothing. There's no yeah. distraction at all. I mean, I. I I'm honest to God. I'm 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 trying to buy a subscription to watch Korean baseball. I mean, that's Are you really? no, I'm not really, no, but I, I would, I would. I would. I mean, I. They're playing baseball in Korea. They are. They're gonna actually. They really are. Uh, they're gonna play some ball. They're gonna start, and it may be Japan uh, hmm. that, that's gonna start first. But I heard the the stories today about the apparently they're gonna put some robots in the around the stands. Oh, and, of course, uh, the Japanese. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, hmm. uh, listen. I would take robot baseball at this point. <laughs> robot marble racing. I mean, it's a, it's just a. Uh, I don't, listen, I don't want to be a downer, and we're we're gonna have to laugh and have some fun and all that, and, and poke fun at things. A, and we got a good show today. Yeah. Oh, we yeah, we do. We do. We do. Terry Sewell. Oh, we got Dr. we got Ron Wyatt. Dr. Ron Wyatt. Who was really one. smart and yeah. scared me a little, but that's <laughs> it's good to be very authoritative and doesn't suffer fools. And Flashbacks I, to uh, your yeah. miscreant youth. Huh? He doesn't suffer fools, and I am a known fool. Uh, so that's uh, how it works. But listen. Uh, we're um, all right. All right, we're gonna upbeat it. We're gonna get it upbeat. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go. We're gonna we're gonna go. All right. So uh, news of the week. News of the week. And, and I don't know how we would uh, we would go with anything other than KIV uh, had you know dropped a bomb on the Republicans. So, oh, oh. I think it was more or less a middle finger to Will Ainsworth. Uh, oh. after, uh, you know, after we pray, everybody praised Will Ainsworth about that. That's good uh, yeah. for for a while, and then uh, and then his little small business group comes out with a plan to reopen things almost immediately, mm-hmm. uh, like crazy people. Uh, and then Jeez. Kay Ivey just came out and says, "No, no, no, no! Listen to me, Ma. Well, we are not opening this place." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she kept the kept the order in place until at least the thirtieth, yeah. uh, which uh, was surprising. And she said, "Data, she yeah, be driven by data, not dates, data, yeah. not dates." I love that. Going, yeah, how about that? And I'm uh, for that. I, Oh, honest to God, I almost fell out of my chair. I, I didn't, I, and I, I, after it was over, I had no idea what to write about. I didn't, you know, it was. I had completely expected the opposite of that. I expected her to take the the recommendations from the small business people and the business community and and run with it. But it, you know, because typically when you have a, a a Republican in state government who is facing uh, business pressure, the big mules breathing down her neck, mm-hmm. you know, they fold 100% of the time. Well, I will say this. 
I think you hit on something very key. Okay. There is, without question, there is a, shall we say, a dynamic tension that exists between the governor and the lieutenant governor, which is very interesting because we don't, we're not used to seeing Republicans really duke it out in this state. Mm -hmm. Now, we've seen it in some other places, you know, Romney and Trump and some other stuff, but we haven't seen it here. So it's very interesting to see that happening here. But I think I think that what, what we're really looking at is Kay Ivey basically setting a boundary on Will Ainsworth's ambitions. I think that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. That's what we're saying. And I think I, I don't know I don't know how far she's gonna go with that. I don't know if she's because I can't imagine her running for governor again. Uh, in in 2022, I can't imagine that, but maybe she is. Maybe yeah. she plans to do that. Yeah. Then maybe this is her way of telling him, "Hey, get 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 back. Get you know, sit, get stay stay there in your in the high chair, buddy. Man. It's not time for you to get out of the high chair yet. You can't sit at the big table yet. You're still in the high chair. Uh, uh, those those recommendations he made were really ridiculous. Uh, I mean, some of them. I, some some of them I agree with. Like we we discussed before. I I I don't. I, I can't see where you keeping one one small business shut down and allowing a big business yeah. to do does the same and I actually thing think that's that. a good point yeah. uh but good point uh you know uh the other things i mean the <laughs> god sakes the allowing youth sports to return get the hell out of here what are you talking about you can't return youth sports it's like uh, you might as well just say all right well we're all gonna die mm-hmm. so we can watch little league baseball that's right and um, we'll start with the young people yeah they're, they're disposable uh well i mean the, the the young people are essentially the zombies at this point you know i mean they're mm-hmm. the ones that are they're alive and you can't kill them and they're just gonna keep spreading it well, um well i don't know now they've got children that are dying of this well i saw a case yeah. uh just it was last week, I think, of a five-year-old. Yeah, but I, I think that, and I would guess here, and, and this is pure speculation, um, that most of the children that have died have had some pre-existing uh, or underlying causes could that be, are there. Uh, but I, I would guess if you be. actually tested, went out and tested uh, all the kids in, in this state, mm-hmm. I would bet you'd be shocked by the number of kids who actually have it walking around right now. Uh, well, they say not only just children, but mm-hmm. people in general. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I know they've, they've, they've yeah. done a few uh, broad tests yeah. in, in places, and they've been shocked by the number of people who have it. But I, I just think that uh, uh, the the kids have, have shown over worldwide, have shown a, a particular resiliency to this uh, and a resistance to the, to the thing overall. I know there have been some children who have died, but I, I just think that there has uh, you, you look at until it got to America. I don't believe anyone under the age of nineteen had, had passed away uh, prior to it get landing on the on these. Well, shores. that may be. I don't know. Uh, and in, don't and know. we had the we had the first mm-hmm. death under under nineteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, uh, regardless, it's a it's a nasty it's a nasty nasty virus, as the president would say, and they're um, bigly. Yeah, and uh, you know, and his news conferences continue to be a circus uh, and Whoa. contain no real information. I think the highlight, and actually the, the, the microcosm of those, uh, you boil it all down to this one thing, was yesterday the crime underneath the, uh, uh, as he was speaking, was Trump colon, uh, there's a chance we'll have, COVID-19 will be gone by fall. Directly underneath that was Fauci colon, 
COVID-19 will definitely be here in the fall. Exactly. Uh, and yes. it's just, you know, every day they try to go in and clean it up gently so they don't affect his little fragile ego. And well, um, I think we do a disservice in calling it a news conference. Yeah. It's not a news conference. It's part, the it's part just, where the two another, doctors speak. Yeah, yeah that part that's, is. That's but part I'm saying when conference. Trump is there, no, it's not a news conference. It's not. It is a, you know, to... to uh, it is it is a basically what it is is it is another installment another episode mm-hmm. in the Trump reality series yep. that's all it is yeah and that's I'll say, all it is I'll say though the uh, uh, the the reporters uh, that cover the White House on a daily basis have had enough of this yeah and they're challenging him yeah, more yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I well, mean, I'm waiting for somebody to just tell to just basically when he says something stupid I want somebody to laugh. Well, they laugh. I, I, well, I mean, I mean, openly uh, laugh yeah. in his face, just uh, just scoff at him, yeah. and just basically say to him, "Mr. President, you really can't believe uh, that." That's I, the Mr. President. That's that's just dumb. Yeah. That, well, that, I mean, that that's was, what I want to hear. I, I want to hear somebody just really call him out. Well, the, did, you, uh, did you see the exchange from uh, with, between him and, and Caitlin Collins from CN, uh, CNN? Uh, uh, you know, and, and, and K, Caitlin is from from Alabama. Okay. Uh, grew up in Prattville. Uh, oh. went to the University of Alabama. Okay. I, uh, and uh, and she uh, she was asking him about his statement where he said um, that. That he has total authority. That the president has total oh, authority over the states. Yeah, so oh, she was the one who was, and, and she said, and yeah. she said back to him, "Who told you that? Yeah, that's not right. That's who told right. you she that? Sure did. Uh, yeah. I didn't was, know she was in Alabama. Oh yeah, and she's a she's a, yeah no uh, no no Caitlin a little bit mm-hmm. uh, uh, mainly mainly conversations through uh, through the twitters, uh, but uh, she is uh, on the podcast. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. see what we can do. Uh, we got a we got a lot of her man. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's she's awesome. she's done really really good work. Uh, yeah. You know, and she was she was one of the early targets of the Trumpers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because she asked the tough questions. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, God forbid you ask the president stuff that the president should know, yeah. and then ask follow ups when he says something off the damn wall. Right. Uh, but because we're not grown ups, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one one person clearly is not. Uh, so, but you know, past that, uh, yeah. you know, then today, uh, state state news anyway. Uh, past that, uh, the uh, the legislature is going to return on May the fourth. Uh, may the fourth be with them, uh, but uh, they uh, may something be with them because uh, you know you got a lot of old people going into that thing, man. There's a lot of old white guys rolling into that place uh, on May the fourth, yeah, and uh, a lot of old old people. Period. Yeah. Like, well, I think a lot of them are going to mask up like Anthony. Yeah. Does, man, Anthony, I love that. Every time I see that picture come across Google yeah. of Anthony and that man, yeah, I'm like, look at my man. That's right. He's uh, he started that long. He was he way ahead did. of the curve on that. Anthony, man. he came in this very studio yeah. and said, "I ain't playing with y'all." Uh-oh. He had nope. a mask had, on, had a mask and a tub of hand sanitizer. <laughs> Uh, and he just hit the hand sanitizer every thirty seconds. Yeah, he, he, sure was. he was like, "I'm not playing with y'all. I got I got children to go yeah. to home to." I, I bet the, I bet his hands are, have got like a chemical burn on, from all the hand sanitizer he's used. But uh, listen, right, I, it's I don't you know they're going to just do budgets and local bills yeah. and get out of there. Uh, you can bet that there's probably going to be some nonsense slid in just mm-hmm. because uh, you mm-hmm. know no everybody's worried about something else. Yeah, and, it's a tradition. So, That's what we do. So, but uh, you know, otherwise, it's been kind of a quiet. Uh, you know, quiet time around the these here parts, and uh, because you just have coronavirus and Netflix, and that's about all you got, man. Um, so the plot to the plot to destroy America. 
That's uh, that's an HBO series. Yeah. As you keep going on about this, I'm it's not really watching good. it. It's really good. I'm never watching that. It's really good. Oh, I, may, I may actually watch that. It actually, it. actually sounds like a pretty good show. You'll love oh. it. You'll love it. It's really good. All right, let's. I uh, tell you what, we're because we got two two guests today, so we're going to have to be short opening and closing. So we're uh, right. we'll, we'll slide out of here now. We'll come back in uh, in a few minutes, and we'll, we should have uh, our, our uh, representative Terry Sewell uh, with us, uh, and then uh, I really like her. Yeah, she's uh, really like her. She's good people. She's sharp. Yes. All right, back in a month. Alrighty, welcome back in here. Uh, joining us now on the podcast is uh, Alabama Congresswoman Terry Sewell, who is actually uh, joining us from the nation's capital right now, where she is uh, t- kind enough to take a few minutes out of what has been a very busy couple of days for her. And and I imagine uh, at, at this point, it's got to be kind of a, it's almost a traumatic sort of a thing to kind of travel around and, and, and be out and kind of, you have to feel kind of exposed after being on lockdown for so long, don't you, Congresswoman? Uh, we do, but you know, government is an essential essential function. And so my staff and I have been uh, working really uh, nonstop, um, working differently than we normally do. Some are teleworking. We've limited um, uh, the, um, uh, we've closed our office to the public, but nevertheless, our staff is still answering telephones and emails, and we're trying to be as responsive as possible. And most importantly, we're trying to make sure that the American people in Alabama 7th Congressional District um, gets uh, gets its fair share of the resources that are being sent uh, down to the state uh, in order for our families, our workers, our first responders, our healthcare professionals, all get the resources we need to get through this pandemic. I, I, and I, I want to get to your district specifically, but I think probably the news of of the day or of the week here is that the latest round of stimulus that that is going that you're actually voting on right now as we as we speak. And uh, I, I guess I would like to just kind of get your broad thoughts of that package and how it affects your district uh, specifically, and and what do you, how do you feel about what that does for the American people and the people of Alabama. Absolutely. So the current uh, emergency stimulus package that's being voted on was prompted by um, the fact that our small businesses, um, the program, the pay protection, uh, the paycheck protection program ran out of money after two weeks. Obviously, uh, we wanted to make sure that um, local uh, truly small-owned businesses, our barbershops, our mom-and-pop shops on Main Street, get the resources they need uh, to weather this pandemic, but also to come back and survive and, and, and be able to reopen um, and, uh, and be able to exist. I think it's critically important. So this, uh, this package includes $310 billion more for the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, another $50 billion or so for uh, the idle loans, that's the economic injury disaster loans uh, that the SBA is administering. And I have to tell you, Josh, um, I uh, the, the PPP program has not been without its um, controversy. Um, so many in my district have been calling me the truly small businesses not being able to get a lender to lend them money, or by the time they are able to get their applications in, there was no money to be had. And so for me, I wanted to ensure uh, that we um, actually get 
the truly small local uh, mom and pop, our minority owned businesses, our barbershops and, and our beauty shops, uh, those resources. And so part of the $310 billion is $60 billion going to, um, to community banks, to CDFIs, uh, to minority lenders in, in hopes that they will get that resources uh, to the truly owned um, and disadvantaged businesses that may not have an accountant on staff to help them get all of the um, information they need in order to get these loans. We are in a crisis situation, a public health crisis that has really led to an economic crisis. Uh, but as I've always said, we want our businesses um, uh, to survive this crisis and we want them to be able to pay, make payroll and keep their employees um, and to endure. But we want to make sure that they do so responsibly and we do it equi equitably. It's really important, I think, that we make sure that these resources are not going just to the Ruth Chris um, that got 200, I think $20 million out of the PPP program. I know that that wasn't the intent of the original legislation. So this legislation gives more, more resources to our small businesses. It gives more resources to our hospitals and for testing. And those are the three categories of, um, that will be financed uh, from this emergency um, supplemental. Congresswoman, this is David. Uh, I want to first of all commend you for what you just said, because my question to you was going to be about what can be done to ensure that minority-owned businesses like mine and others that are small are able to survive uh, and, and, and get access to that money. So now that you've addressed that, and I appreciate it, let me ask you this. Uh, I get the sense that that while access to the money certainly is one hurdle, the other hurdle is having the information and the resources to actually pursue the money. Absolutely. Uh, have, you, have you in your office thought about uh, any mechanisms that can be activated to help uh, small minority-owned businesses and other small businesses? We surely do. I first want to just note that the bells that you're hearing, it doesn't mean that there's a fire going on here in Washington, D.C., in my office. These are the bells that are saying that we um, that a vote has been called. But as I uh, indicated, the new normal is that we're voting in stages so that uh, all 435 members of Congress are not on the floor at the same time. So we still have at least a good 15 minutes to talk. Um, and I would love, love to address your question about minority-owned businesses um, and truly small uh, uh and businesses and sometimes the self-employed in the 1099s. I thought it was really important that we make sure that we um, have access to capital and was pleased to see that in both packages we we um, changed the definition of who can actually apply for uh, these SBA loans, the PPP program and the IDLE loan to include the self-employed and the and the uh, the self-employed and the 1099 independent contractors, which is a good first start. But as you indicated. Um, what the coronavirus has really taught us about health care and now the economy is reinforce, uh, put a spotlight on systemic disinvestment that has occurred when it comes to um, health disparities in minority communities, when it comes to lack of capital, access to capital in minority and um, small uh, women-owned and um, disadvantaged uh, businesses. And so we need to acknowledge that this has been a systemic disinvestment uh, and that, they are, that we're not starting at the same equal footing. And so when it comes to pots of money that the federal government 
is trying to infuse to stimulate the economy, we need to make sure that we are giving uh, these kinds of businesses a fair shake at accessing that those resources. One of the things that the Congressional Black Caucus fought for in this package, and while we didn't get it exactly the way we wanted it, was we wanted to have uh, a set-aside for minority-owned, uh, women-owned, and veteran-owned businesses um, and those socially disadvantaged businesses. And while we didn't get a set-aside, we did receive, um, uh, we did get an acknowledgement in this package that a certain pocket of money will be going to minority uh, lenders and community banks and those um, uh, community uh, development financial institutions that are often located in underserved communities. Great. One quick follow-up, uh, Congresswoman, which is going in a slight, slightly different direction, but is related to the overall conversation. Um, it, it appears to me as though corona, the coronavirus has sort of imposed a bipartisanship on Congress and a bipartisan atmosphere on, on Congress and the White House. In other words, you know, there's very little room for you all not to work together to get things done. Do you do you agree with that assessment or do you have a different point of view? No, that's absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, we are doing these emergency stimulus packages because uh, it, it is a necessity that in order for our people, the first and foremost, we have to save lives, American lives, Alabamians, um, uh, in particular, my 7th Congressional District. It's about saving lives. This is a public health crisis that is truly um, highlights uh, uh, our interconnectedness. Um, we're all working to try to reduce the community spread. What affects one affects the other. And if we are to get through this pandemic, we have to do so together. And while there are obviously, um, you know, uh, nevertheless, those political viewpoints that may be differing, um, we have to put politics aside and do what's in the best interest of the American people. And so uh, we have seen a spirit of bipartisanship. I think that that's critically important, not just in a moment of crisis, but especially in a moment of crisis. You, know, you, you mentioned uh, your seventh congressional district and, and 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 taking care of the people there and uh, in, in in that avenue, you uh, you put together a, a, a diverse group. Uh, an advisory group there of uh, 50 business leaders and, and health and community leaders as well, uh, and, and submitted the report to uh, to Governor Ivey uh, about reopening the state, uh, quote unquote, reopening the state uh, to business. And uh, you know, I, I thought it was a it was a very uh, comprehensive. Uh, report uh, far more comprehensive than than came from most of the other uh, <laughs> Congress people in this state, uh, which should not be surprising. Uh, and and uh, <laughs> particularly one in particular with it, just I don't know what he was doing, but uh, but the yeah, uh, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's not important. We have no reason to give in air time to that. In the spirit of bipartisanship, I won't acknowledge. Uh, <laughs> we, we all are on the, we're all on the same page here, but I won't acknowledge the spirit of uh, bipartisanship. Well, I, I think. <laughs> well, while you're all working from the same book, I don't know if you're necessarily on the same page. Uh, it's a whew, uh, the uh, but uh, but but uh, Representative Sewell's uh, group here. They had a survey that they sent out to 144 stakeholders. They got everybody's input that they could get out of this thing, and then sent a very comprehensive report. And I guess uh, what what in in summation uh, of of the report, what would you say w was the overall theme of that report, or what did you find from from listening to this group of people? 
Well, I thought that uh, it was really important as Alabama's, uh, the representative of Alabama's majority minority district, and given the disproportionate effect that the coronavirus has had both on the health impact of African Americans and minority communities, um, but also the um, the disproportionate economic impact that it's had, that we put together a really as comprehensive as we possibly could in eight days. She gave us uh, eight days to get it to her. Um, but uh, that we got as much input as possible uh, because I thought it was really critically important um, that we also showcase that while Alabama's 7th Congressional District is economically the poorest district in the state of Alabama, we have amazing resources like uh, the University of Alabama, UAB, um, you know, Alabama State, Alabama Power, um, you know, Hyundai, Mercedes-Benz, that the assets of the district can inform and help uplift the people of the district. And what you saw was a report that showed that we're eager in Alabama's 7th Congressional District to get back uh, to work like everybody else, but we want to do so in a safely, strategically, and socially responsible way, guided by uh, the healthcare professionals. At the end of the day, this is about saving lives and mitigating the risks of uh, people contacting this uh, this disease. And so we were able to um, get all that together. And it is a comprehensive report. We wanted it to be. We worked around the clock to get it. So because at the end of the day, we want to make sure that when we do reopen, we do so uh, in a phased-in approach is what uh, the businesses in our district said, uh, phased-in by, by uh, size, location, um, the the, the um, how much a business has customers and interfaces with the public, that all those factors be taken into account, and that we also prioritize uh, – is what the bottom line was, prioritize uh, protecting the people of the district who are most vulnerable by this uh, disease. And that's our minority population, our elderly, our um, uh, those with pre-existing conditions, and those in rural communities that have lack of access. We define vulnerable communities by their ability to rebound and have access to resources in order to uh, help them make better choices about what they do and, more importantly, uh, make, uh, make sure that the outcomes are more equitable. And so uh, our district felt very strongly that we are certain areas of our district are more able to open up quickly uh, than others. Uh, and oftentimes they were those were the bigger uh, companies like Mercedes-Benz has been using the stay-at-home order to uh, retrofit their facility to make sure that their partitions and even their break rooms have, uh, you know, um, you know, partitioned areas for individual snack areas. Um, but Mercedes-Benz is a big company, and they have global resources to be able to access global supply chains to get that personal protective equipment uh, or safety equipment that folks need. And then there's the smaller, you know, mom and pops that are beauty and bar barbershops that have been closed down for the last, um, you know, a couple of weeks. And they're eager to get back, but they also know that they have the most contact with the public, right? Um, there's nothing more uh, 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 public than and, and much more uh, less social distancing than having your hair cut or your nails done. And so we wanted, we wanted uh, this. We wanted the ability to um, reopen done in a responsible way uh, that does prioritize.
prioritize the needs of the most vulnerable in our society. At the end of the day, because what happens to one directly affects another, um, if we don't help those who are um, who have less resources be able to fight this coronavirus, we will not be able to stop the community spread. And so that was one of the takeaways. The other takeaway was that we had, um, you know, leading the leading medical and public health professionals in the state of Alabama uh, have their uh, headquarters in Alabama's 7th Congressional District. So we were able to have UAB, the dean of UAB's public health department. We had my, Mark uh, Wilson, Jefferson County's public health officer. We had Will Fernani, uh, the president and CEO of UAB, Medicine, um, UAB Hospital. And they came up with what they consider to be the public health trigger of a precondition to reopening Alabama's economy. And they said that they would like to see a, a steady a trend of 14 or more days of decrease in hospitalizations done by public health districts, acknowledging that some districts are better able to open up quicker than than other districts. And um, I thought that that was a real uh, eye-opener, and I hope that the governor will take a look at that section and take a look at all of our, uh, we divided it up into public health, business, and uh, protecting vulnerable communities. And you know, I, I was very proud of the fact that we were able to get 50 plus uh, state you know, leaders in our district, business leaders and community leaders uh, representing 18 different stakeholder groups, everything from faith leaders to to small manufacturing, to mom and pop shops, to beauty, beauty parlors and funeral homes. We were able to get a really diverse group. And I'm very proud of the report and stand by it. It's uh, it's findings. You know, I think one of the one of the one of the ways that everyone agrees that we, that we can uh, use to get past this or to safely open up uh, businesses and, and get back to somewhat normal life is uh, is an increase in testing. Uh, and, and in that seventh uh, congressional district there in the Black Belt region as well, there, there has been a real problem of getting tests out and getting people in to get tests. Uh, what has there been any plan or is there is there anything new with uh, with getting getting more testing done in that area uh, and and to just kind of help people uh, figure out where to go and, and how to make that happen. Absolutely. You know, we have been updating our website every day, sewell.house.gov, of testing sites in our district. I have been very concerned about the lack of uh, testing us uh, of reliable, consistently opened testing sites in the Black Belt. Um, you know, I understand from um, Scott uh, Harris, the public health, the state public health officer, that he's doing the very best he can with limited resources to uh, get to the hot spots. And we're obviously very grateful that Jefferson County, the city of Birmingham, being a hot spot, that we were able to have uh, those resources there. But ultimately, we have got to make sure that all 67 counties have uh, testing sites. And our report uh, over and over again uh, from our respondents and from um, those business leaders, everyone has said that unless we get um, those uh, test testing and tracing capacity to be able to trace the contacts of those who have been infected, we will not be able to stop the spread. And so testing and prioritizing testing in places where people live in uh, these uh, very uh, vulnerable communities, our homeless population, our elderly population, we have got to get those testing there. And so, um, you know, 
I, I work every day. I'm on the phone trying to get testing sites uh, stood up in the Black Belt. You know, I'm a proud product of the Black Belt, having grown up in Selma, Alabama. And while Selma has uh, a lot more resources, I think of Perry County, Greene County, and, um, and um, Pickens County and other counties like that that just have not had the same kind of uh, consistent testing sites. And we're working every day, even trying to work with private groups like Walmart to try to get those uh, testing sites. The bill that I'm about to vote on today will give another uh, $50 billion dollars uh, to testing, and um, we want to make sure that when those testing uh, resources get to the state of Alabama, that our governor and um, our public health um, officer prioritizes those rural areas where we're just not seeing the testing um, in a consistent and reliable way. If you have uh, time for one more quick question, uh, I love the urgency in your voice, Congresswoman. Uh, because the statistics are really concerning for those of us who are in the black community. Absolutely. We only make up 27% of the population, but we account for 53% of the COVID-19 deaths in our state. Absolutely. Um, and go, go right ahead. Go, uh, you, you, you were jumping in. Go right ahead. No, no, no. I just wanted to say, you know, we're following not only Alabama seeing, like you said, uh, 53% uh, of the population that, of deaths in Alabama have come from um, the African-American community. That's right in line with uh, what we're seeing nationally. In Washington, D.C., where I am right now, Africans, African-Americans uh, make up nearly 50% of the confirmed cases, but an astonishing 80% of the deaths in the state of Alabama. We make up 26% of the population. But but we're over slightly over 50% of the deaths. This is really unacceptable. Of course, the health disparities being brought to light by this virus are not caused by COVID-19. The virus is only bringing this to light. We have had a systematic disinvestment in the African-American community when it comes to health resources. That's why one of the recommendations uh, to the governor uh, in our report, and this came from business leaders and community leaders alike, you know, is to expand Medicaid. At least you would get some of the working poor. The rea reality is that the uninsured in the state of Alabama are suffering. And one way that you can increase health outcomes is give people access to health insurance so that we can get folks on the preventive uh, end of the spectrum. And we can truly uh, try to lower uh, some of the incidences of hypertension and, and uh, diabetes and other things that are often pre-existing pre, um, pre conditions uh, for African Americans. And so, you know, I think that it's critically important that we um, get through this pandemic. We don't need to be pointing fingers. We have to all work together to get through this. Um, but at the same time, uh, there needs to be some real thought about how we're structuring our health delivery system in this nation and how we structure our broadband and why why broadband has taken so such a long time to get to rural communities. Uh, you know, our, the, the, the disinvestment that we're seeing in infrastructure and health care, we have to, as a nation, own up to it and do something about it. Because at the end of the day, it's about saving lives and every life matters. Every life matters. And we got to make sure that we're doing everything that we can uh, to um, to. Uh, to, to, to allow people the ability to uh, help themselves, but also to acknowledge that there are health disparities, there are disparities between rural and urban that are that are really symptomatic of our lack of dis our lack of investment in these communities. 
I, I think uh, I don't know if I heard any bells, but I'm pretty sure I heard uh, some angels singing uh, as, as you were going through that because we were, yeah, we've uh, we and everybody should say amen because I think amen. we've all been preaching from that same thing. Listen, mm-hmm. uh, Congresswoman, I, I know you're you're extremely busy there. We really really appreciate you taking the time and 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 for all the work that you that you've done. You know, with without you and and, and Doug Jones and the other state uh, Democrats here, I don't know where the working folks in the in the state would be. Uh, and, but uh, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be where they are without you guys. And so we really appreciate it. Well, I thank you. And I just want to say, um, you know, we in the 7th Congressional District are incredibly uh, proud of our strong civil rights background, you know, from the Montgomery bus boycott, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge. Our shared history in Alabama's 7th District is one of triumph of the human spirit over adversity. I think that the greatest asset I often said about my district is the courage, determination and resilience of the people of Alabama's 7th District. And it will remain our greatest asset as we battle this COVID-19. And working together, uh, we will share resources across the geographic, economic, and racial spectrum, and we will get through this stronger together. And I want to thank you all for allowing me to talk about Alabama's 7th District report to the governor, but also about what we're working on right here in Washington, D.C., for all Alabamians, for all Americans. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. Yes, ma'am. All right, that was uh, Congresswoman Terry Sewell. Uh, it, uh, listen, the uh, you, you would uh, you could do a lot worse than to have uh, Terry Sewell uh, I'm, I'm representing gonna, you. I'm gonna put and, it on the table, Josh. Okay. What I heard today is the reason why I'm very happy to be not only a a, a uh, an Alabamian who's a Democrat mm-hmm. supporting her, mm-hmm. but why I am glad that as an individual I have supported her. Mm-hmm. She is taking the positions, she is articulating the vision Mm -hmm. and the message that is essential for our state. Yeah, it's it's so weird, um, you know, to to look at. And I don't know if weird, but it, I guess telling would be the most would be the most appropriate way to, to phrase it. Is it's so telling to to look at the the reports done by uh, by Terry Sewell and by Doug Jones, you know, and the and the thought processes that went into these things, and and to and to watch them on Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the things that they do every day with getting doctors on from around the state to come in and you know and they have these facebook live events and you talk to the doctors and to, and to doug and to uh and to terry sewell and you know and you ask some questions and they answer a lot of things and tell you what's going on and it's it's such it's so much smarter it's so much more uh data driven it's so much more uh, comprehensive. Uh, it's so much more. Uh, it, it includes so many more people and layers of the community uh, than what you see from their Republican counterparts. And I know we're supposed to be bipartisan or whatever. Yeah, uh, but I mean, yeah, I forgot. You know, this report that Mo Brooks put together, his white his white people group. Oh, that he you put out. Decide to name a name. Uh, I, I mean, that, that I knew it was, that's a, who it was, it was a joke. It was an absolute hundred percent joke. And I mean, and uh, you know, Adderholt had one that was better uh, than, than Mo Brooks, which is not, I mean, when the bar is laying on the ground, it's pretty easy to step over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it's, uh, it, the, the, the difference is I don't, I can't understand how you could look at these things and see what, you know, my, I don't even know if Mike Rogers did one, you know, I mean, maybe he's too busy adjusting his toupee. I don't know, but, uh, the, oh, shots, um, shots. that's right. Shots. Hey, listen, I got, I got good hair. Yeah. Uh, sure. and so, you know, but, 
Anyway, I know we, we got to close this down here, but it's it, it just is so telling the the amount of thought and, and how much more intelligent and and more comprehensive and more uh, inclusive those reports are uh, from from those uh, Terry Sewell and Doug Jones and you know it just it just doesn't. I don't. I don't know. It, uh, I mean, even I, it, and I don't know that they necessarily. At the end of the day, came out with a with a with a far reaching, more uh, different opinion about things. I don't think other than Mo Brooks. Uh, you know, I think Adderholt had the same kind of thing, and and most of the Republicans said essentially the same stuff, which is listen, we need to open and but we we need to do so smartly and safely. Uh, and here are some ideas for doing that. Uh, and so I don't know that anybody necessarily took a way different approach. Again, other than and Mo Brooks, uh, but uh, you know, but you look at how they got to that, and the ideas, and the and the planning for the ideas. You know, it's one thing to say it. You know, it's one thing to say, "Yeah, I'd like to our education to be better in Alabama." It's another thing to have a plan to do it. You know, and that, that's what we that's where we are here. And I, you know, I, I really think Terry Sewell. I know, I, I know the feeling of banging your head against the wall every day, and and so I, I think God she she does that a lot. It. Yeah, God bless her for doing it because you're right. It can't be easy being part of this. Congressional delegation. No. no, it cannot. It really cannot. All right, that's a that's a wrap it up. But uh, thanks to Terry Sewell for that. Uh, there's a lot of good information there, and uh, we'll be back in a minute. Uh, welcome back to Alabama Politics This Week. David Person, Josh Moon, and with us through the magic of Zoom is Dr. Ron Wyatt, my longtime friend who uh, is uh, has got a resume that is uh, so extensive. I'm just going to cut it down to just uh, the essential parts for today. Ron is... Um, the Vice President and Patient Safety Officer at MCIC Vermont, which is a hospital group based in Lower Manhattan. He's also the Chief Equity Officer for More Inclusive Healthcare based in Cincinnati and is a core faculty person uh, at at the American College of Graduate Medical Education. And he looks at health disparities and is a part of a collaborative doing that. Ron, did I did I get the essential stuff for today? Yeah, I think that's right. The the uh, MCIC Vermont um, is the what we call a captive, which is the medical malpractice company that represents uh, New York Presbyterian, Wild Cornell, Yale, uh, University of Rochester, and Johns Hopkins. Um, so that's so I'm in charge of their patient safety um, initiatives. So. What was your job like before COVID-19, and what is it like now? Yeah, uh, so um, it, tr- truly, other than not being in lower Manhattan, it hasn't changed that much. I think the biggest thing that has been we started biweekly phone calls with the uh, subscribers, we called them, academic medical centers in New York and Connecticut and, again, Hopkins, University of Rochester. So we've had biweekly meetings with the safety and quality teams, which we normally wouldn't do that. Uh, but because of COVID and, and Zoom, like you said, we're able to get really twice a week real-time information uh, about what's happening in those organizations. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I know your background is really, um, even though you your background is as a primary care physician, you have become really a global expert on public health issues, epidemiological issues. What is your evaluation of where things stand currently as it relates to COVID-19? Let's start first with the United States, and then let's look at your home state of Alabama. But let's start with COVID-19. Let's start with the United States. Uh, sure. So, so I guess, I, you know me, David, I'll sum up a few words. Unreliable. Uh, unreliable, unprepared, not ready. Um, and uh, I, I will say that there's a saying in, in safety and quality that all of your policies and plans that you have on paper look great until they meet reality. And that's when they either stand up or fall apart. Um, so with this one, I will say that collectively, um, and, and what we call higher liability terms, there has not been that collective mindfulness that was needed to keep us out of trouble, to anticipate the unexpected. Uh, that is absent. Uh, so that becomes then the opposite of collective mindfulness and it really demonstrates collective mindlessness. And, that's, and, and when you get into trouble, then the question is, how do you contain it? How do you get out of trouble? And then what did you learn that's going to keep you out of trouble? So if I map that out, it has been, uh, for the most part, at the federal government level, a failure. Uh, at the most part, for different areas, local areas in the country, um, a lack of mindfulness and a lack of anticipation uh, that is tragic. What about the state of Alabama? Yeah, so my home state, as you know, I'm born in Selma, grew up in the Black Belt. Um, and um, again, I'll say uh, a, a good set of talking points uh, with a very different reality. Uh, Alabama, as it relates to COVID-19, is not an anomaly. There are signals that there are problems problems with supplies, supply chain, problem with assessing uh, those areas. While they may not be as high in density as lower Manhattan, they're still at risk. So then when you begin to see the numbers in Alabama that emerge uh, out of of low-income communities and particularly in long-term care facilities, then my question would be, who thought about these things prior to uh, a pandemic or, or who's thinking about them on an ongoing basis? as opposed to just reacting. And a a, uh, characteristic of an unreliable system is that it's very reactionary uh, and it's not prospective and it's not proactive. And and even today uh, in Alabama, time is being lost because everyone's into leadership meaning, into reactions and not proactively preparing for what comes next. COVID is, is not peaked here yet, I don't think, but in September, October, it will make its way back around and it will collide with the flu season uh, and other seasonal illnesses that will emerge when we get into the fall. So, so leadership in the state should be thinking about what's next. What is that next wave and, and how, what have we learned? And that's what I mean about containment and staying out of trouble. What have we learned to prepare us for the next round of this? Um, and and uh, stop thinking about, will we have a football season? Uh, and start thinking about, are we going to save lives uh, and be prepared for the unexpected? 
Well, I, that, that's a bit of blasphemy. I think uh, the, no football season. I don't. I don't know what we're going to do without that. Uh, but uh, you're right. Uh, obviously, there there have been people who have been far more focused on on issues that are uh, that should be far down the list of worries for us right now. But it, I, I know what you're saying, and, and I agree completely. Because why wouldn't you? You're way smarter than me. But uh, the once we're in this mess now, now that we're here. What can we do at this point to mitigate the damage? Right, right. So how? So again, how do you get out of trouble once you're in it? Right. First step for me: commit to getting out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the willpower. Uh, whether that's political willpower, whatever it is, commit to getting out of trouble. Right. And then uh, don't assume that somehow Alabama is an anomaly. It is not. So look at the signals. What are the signals? The signals are the data. So make sure that you have, you have accessible data, that the data is robust, that is validated, uh, and that is actionable data. And then use that data to help you get out of trouble, but to prepare you for what comes next. So then part of that data is, what is how many people are being tested on a daily basis? What are the... the, the um, Weaknesses in testing. How are we containing uh, COVID now? How will we contain it when it hits up against other illnesses in the fall? So, so the containment part of it. What What are we doing about contact tracing? Uh, when, you know, I can go out from Madison any day of the week, and it's almost surreal uh, that people are going on with their normal lives. It's the exact opposite of even what I saw in in uh, New Jersey and New York City. Before I left there five weeks ago, okay, people were already beginning to think about uh, how to contain this, and look what happened anyway. Right. Right? So, so those things need to be thought about now. Remove the fact that somehow this is an anomaly. I had a, a service person at my house last week, and he said he, he's just, you know, without any prompting. So, well, you know, we're not like New York City. He didn't know I worked in New York City. Right. Right. We're less dense here, right? And I could go a couple of ways with being less dense in Alabama, but I won't. Uh, but I, I was just saying, you know, we're not as dense in the population. Therefore, we're somehow protected. You are not. Assume that you're not protected. We don't know what we don't know. Follow the data. Try to understand what we don't know. Try to contain it. Apply the science. We have some of the best scientists, epidemiologists, public health people in the world in Birmingham, Alabama. Mike Sag and that group down there are just the best of the best. Mike was my chief resident when I was a medical student. They're the best of the best. They've done this around the world. They've done it from Europe to South Africa. So, so as when I talked about Alabama to someone in the past, I asked them, why isn't there more activity in, in Alabama around public health issues? And this was 10 years ago. Mm. And a person working in Myanmar, and he was literally teaching people in Myanmar how to how to dig and maintain latrines. Hmm. I said, well, why, why are we working on public health in Alabama? He said, because Burma is easier than Birmingham. Wow. You know, and he's talking about leadership, politics, culture, beliefs, uh, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, that, that we know exist here. And, and at some point, you got to talk about it. You got to stop fighting the Civil War. It's over. Right. We got to talk about what's here and now and what's going to happen in the future uh, and, and act on that data uh, in, in a robust way. 
And, and, and that requires true leadership. And that requires leadership saying, here's stuff I don't know, but I know I got experts in Birmingham. I know I got rocket scientists in Huntsville. We can figure this out. Right. And let's put together the message people that are going to get that message out. Even if you have to go door to door now, sidewalk to sidewalk, screaming it out or put some some doggone uh, megaphones on some bands and roll around saying, stay your butt inside. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. Right. Uh, stay away from these places that you feel like you need to go to. Of all things, I got an invitation last weekend to a cookout. Mm. A cookout. Mm. Yeah. Right. And here in Huntsville. So, so mm. you know, if the leaders don't start to say these things publicly and loudly and continually, then as, as, as the saying goes, then the system here is perfectly designed to get the results it will get, which is death and tragedy. Right. Mm. And, and ruination. Mm. Uh, and then we got to look at it in a real way how we move self-interest and greed out of this. And, and we do what's best for the public. We do what's best for the future of Alabama, right? We take care of, of those in Alabama that are disadvantaged already. And now you pile this on and you exponentially accelerate the disadvantage in this state. Uh, and that's got to get through at all levels of government, social agencies, churches, societal organizations, fraternities and sororities, you name it. It's got to be a collective effort. People have to collaborate in ways that they have never collaborated before and probably don't even want to. Uh, but at this point, you know, this will not be the last pandemic. Yeah. What, what, in, in, in regards to that, uh, where, in your mind, where does the expansion of Medicaid uh, in this state, would, would that help to to better our chances, I guess, against a, a, a second pandemic or even uh, this uh, pandemic returning, uh, this coronavirus returning in force, uh, you know, in the fall? Mm-hmm. So, so I think that it was a major um, mistake to not expand Medicaid in the state of Alabama, um, you know, because at a minimum, it provides access to care at a minimum. And I will guarantee you, when you end up uh, summing up the, the amount of money that this will cost, it would have been a far better investment to, to expand Medicaid than to react to what we're reacting to now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I believe that that's a, a one piece of a solution that is eminently doable and was, was certainly a missed opportunity. And if you look at the map of states that expanded Medicaid versus states that didn't expand Medicaid, look at the data related to, to a coronavirus, it tells you a story. Wow. What I mean about data. Wow. Uh, so it begins to tell you a story. Um, so, so yeah, Alabama, it's not too late to expand Medicaid. And again, that gets back to leadership. It's, you know, things we know about that have been barriers, you know, in this state. So, okay. you know, so for me, there's a broader issue there and, and that's around should we have a single pair system anyway? So that's a mm. different topic for a different day. Yeah. Please expand Medicaid. And to Alabama's credit, Alabama's Medicaid system is recognized as one of the best in the country, particularly oh. as it relates to children's health. Oh, yeah. So, so it was a major political, economic mistake uh, to not expand Medicaid. So in that, in that ties in, I would assume, Ron, 
directly to, <clears throat> pardon me, the issues of comorbidities, right? So the expansion of Medicaid would have better positioned the state to deal with the comorbidities that make people most vulnerable to COVID-19, right? So, so that is exactly right. So, so you know, we've had these, these um, stories, and, and I have to say, David, uh, that they are unfortunately fatalistic, if not nihilistic. And when we say, well, you have a certain population of populations that uh, are at greater risk for death uh, from coronavirus, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, um, you know, listed as these things that put people at higher risk. What I will say uh, to that fatalistic approach is that those are downstream expressions of a failed system Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at it. And when I look at a, take a take a look at a snapshot of the U.S., diabetes, obesity, hypertension lives in the South, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we have the stroke belt from New Orleans over to Savannah. Uh, and, and then we ask ourselves, go back upstream from the downstream uh, chronic illnesses to say, what drove that? One of them, without a doubt, is access to care. A, a, a key principle to access to care is, do you have insurance, uh, among other things? And we can talk about those, um, you know, because those things are what uh, I believe have created a population that, in, whether expressed or not, is probably mostly implicit, is you have a population that is, is seen as disposable. Yeah. And inside of that, we can talk about that, you have throughout Alabama, you know, what's been referred to as sacrifice zones. Oh. And, and coronavirus has exposed those sacrifice zones, not just in Alabama, but a lot of places across the country. Please explain that. Please explain for people what sacrifice, sacrifice zones are. sacrifice zone came out of the literature around um, um, environment, right? Um, so there is something that's called environmental racism. And, and sacrifice zones are places in Alabama, like Triana, mm-hmm. that, that a, a community in essence, was sacrificed by an industry that was dumping DDT into the water sources. Yeah. And, and you had to, and, and you know that story where you had to move a population of people out, and that population is still impacted by being sacrificed. But part of that, part of that, that relates back to healthcare, uh, is uh, the internalization of the racism that was created. So that a person say, well, I wasn't worth it anyway, right? Mm. Uh, you know, when, when my children went to Bob Jones, there, there were groups of kids there. One of the groups at Bob Jones, they called them the Triana Kids. That mm. has a, a mental health impact on people. Mm. Right? It is a bias against people that came out of them being sacrificed uh, uh, by uh, what, what is nothing less than environmental racism. And when you look at a map of, where the Superfund sites are located in the U.S., there are several in the, in, in the U.S. Yeah, I told you one was in, in Ferguson, Missouri. So there were yeah. upstream problems that existed in Ferguson before Michael Brown got shot, right? Mm-hmm. There were upstream problems that existed in a sacrifice zone like Flint, Michigan, before they found out that the, lit, the water was poisoned with lead. So that's what I mean by these sacrifice zones that typically are places where people are considered disposable. It's like what's called Cancer Alley in Louisiana, uh, mm. where the, the petroleum industry has poisoned the environment there for, for generations, right? Uh, and you have playgrounds in the shadows of 
these huge uh, petroleum uh, uh, clouds. Or on the south side of Chicago, when you have these high rates of asthma, childhood asthma, but you have these mountains of coal and coal dust that's being spread out of the south side of Chicago. That has a direct health impact, mental health impact on populations in these so-called sacrifice zones. Right. And see, you, you're talking to, as you know, uh, you're talking to a native of the south side of Chicago who has asthma. <laughs> so what you're talking about really resonates with me. Uh, I, I also am very concerned about the reality that here in the state of Alabama, we, meaning African-Americans, comprise about 23% of the population, but we are over 50% of the reported COVID-19 deaths. As somebody who's an expert in public health and medicine, when you hear that, what do you think? Yeah, so so I think that we've we reached a point where we, we need to cut through the noise and get to the signal. And um, uh, what we'll end up with most likely across the country is that 30 to 40 percent of the deaths will be in in black and brown people. Um, So then if we just take Alabama and look at the population, uh, that numbers that you just uh, expressed, what are the drivers uh, behind that? And again, that gets back to these, you know, some people have called them the the non-medical determinants of health. Some call them the social determinants of health. Uh, um, uh, what they are, um, and, and I'll try to be gentle with my terms, it's the shiggity that's killing us. Mm. Um, and we want to say it's, mm. again, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, which mm-hmm. are there, right? But what's underneath that? Alabama has a history of pervasive segregation that's primarily through housing and, and, and substandard housing. Uh, When you look at people who will die, many of them are in what are called unappreciated jobs, uh, as opposed to um, other jobs where people are more appreciated. Look at the the, um, poverty level uh, in the state of Alabama. So low income is another one of those things that make people disposable. Uh, Then ask about, is there access to fresh food uh, where there needs to be? in the state of Alabama. And again, you can apply these to Chicago as well uh, and and some other places in the country, but access to food. I visited the um, UAB again, a wonderful program uh, around that deals with some of these issues. And and years ago, I met with one of their uh, team members there. And I asked a simple question in Alabama, in Birmingham, if, if someone gave you a $10 million grant, what would you do with it? And she said, I wouldn't have another um, uh, health fair. And she said, everywhere there was a con- so-called convenience store uh, near a school, I would put a fruit and vegetable stand outside of that, that school so that when, when children came out, they would learn to come and pick up some free fruits and vegetables and not go across the street um, you know, to get the, the high-carb, high-fat foods. You know, that needs to be pressure put on. The, the, the peddlers of junk food uh, in the state of Alabama. For me, I see no reason other than the economics of it to have a uh, vending machine in a public school uh, that's pushing out uh, sugary sodas and, and high-fat, high-carb foods. So, so there needs to be increased access to fresh, fresh food. 
Uh, could you imagine in a high school having a vending machine where you had almost free fruits and vegetables and you just push a button and get an orange or an apple or a banana? Right. Next, lower quality health care. So what does that mean? Uh, you know, you look around the state at uh, what is the distribution of, of access to health care uh, and then who's providing that health care. Uh, we need to think of a way that we have more black and brown people in professional schools, medical school, nursing school, pharmacy school, physical therapists, all of the above. There is no doubt that when, when we have people coming out in health professions that look like us, the care is a higher quality. That, that's a proven fact. Uh, we talked about sacrifice zones. Next is what, what are the schools doing? Uh, are, are schools being adequately funded in the places that they need to be adequately funded? Uh, you know, that was a list that came out this week of the schools in Alabama that were ranked the highest in the country. And I would say go down that list and see where those schools are located. Uh, and I'll guarantee you they have all of the, the support that they need, resources they need to guarantee that children have a chance, a greater chance to be successful, where they have the AP classes. Who gets into an AP class? What's the criteria? How are those children treated uh, differently uh, in, these, in these settings? Um, all too often you find that kids are, are labeled as behavioral problems, and they're put someplace where they're, in, in essence, um, warehoused uh, in, inside public schools. We need to stop that and make sure that every child has the resources that they that need to be successful and to, to proceed with their education uh, at all levels. So those are just some of the things I think that um, we need to think about. Again, in Alabama, there is some nationally, but particularly here in Alabama, that's called the Tuskegee effect. Uh, and that is that the, the, we have to know our history. Yeah. And we have to share that so people know that the impact of what happened in Tuskegee with the syphilis project still resonates today. It's one of the reasons in the state of Alabama that black men in particular are less likely to go in for health care. Mm-hmm. So we got to know that history. We got to, we got to know um, that we have to build trust or I'll say the mistrust that exists in the health system so that when I have insurance that I'm going to go in and, and I know that I'm going to be treated equitably uh, and I know that the access, the, the quality care yeah. I receive when I go in is the yeah. same for everybody else that co- goes in. There's no clinical decision that is desperate uh, from from someone who may come in that look very different than, than right. myself. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I really appreciate your passion, your insight. Uh, you are my go-to person for these sorts of issues because... I know that not only do you have the resume to back up what you're saying, but you have the compassion and the passion that resonates quite a lot. Josh has been just nodding his head, just nodding. Yeah, that's uh, the whole com- during I, all your remarks. I have nothing smart to add whatsoever, <laughs> zero. So it's uh, you know, I know when to keep my mouth shut. So maybe that's the smartest thing I can do. <laughs> so Ron, thank you for joining us, Dr. Ron Wyatt, who uh, is a, as I said, a global expert and uh, health and medicine and and epidemiological issues. Thanks for joining us on Alabama Politics this week. Uh, Thank you. Good to spend time with you anytime. All right. Thank you, Ron. All right. right. Yeah. So did you, uh, Josh, did you notice that Ron used the word shiggity? Did you notice that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's his passion. That's his passion coming out there. Oh, I, oh, I used a different word last week. Well, uh, 
<laughs> I typically use different well, words. Well, I was going to say, you know, uh, there, there, there's been many a day when I think I've used different words. <laughs> uh, but this thing, you know, the thing about it is, and, and this is, again, what I love about Ron, um, his passion is informed by data. Yeah. And by and and by research. He's a smart person. He, he is. Yeah. And he understands the the very dramatic dilemma we are facing in this state. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it just it seems as though, you know, he talked about people being disposable. Mm-hmm. It does seem as though the elites, the political elites in our state, particularly the conservative Republican political elites, in my opinion, mm-hmm. they see a broad swath of the state as disposable. That's why they espouse the policies they mm-hmm. do. Yeah, I don't know that they would uh, they would come right out and say that, but no, I think uh, with wouldn't. their uh, with their actions and their policies and things, they have proven that over the course of time. Yeah, they, they certainly believe that, and uh, you know. I, Honestly, man, I was, uh, I got to tell you, it's kind of intimidated by Ron. Uh, he kind of seems like a guy who sent me to like the office in high school. Or, <laughs> like, he suspended me and said, so, like, just got tired of my foolishness and just, just suffer fools like me very well. So, uh, uh, well, at least nobody can send uh, you to the principal's office. That's true. That's true. I cut this thing, cut Ron right off if I want to. I'll record his interview. All right. Let's, uh, let's slide out. Uh, we're, we're running long again, uh, but that's okay. That's all right. It's uh, been a good podcast today. Yeah. I mean, good, but two two good smart guests, man. Mm-hmm. That's you know. Listen, I maybe too intelligent for uh, for the state, but we'll see. And, and both of them, mm-hmm. notably both of them from the Alabama black belt. That's right. Well, listen, you know, man, a lot of a uh, lot of good smart people from the Alabama That's black right. belt. And what you worry is is the state of the black belt has cost us many many more people like yeah. uh, like Ron and uh, Terry Sewell. So, That's right. All right, let's uh, let's let's slide out. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back in here, Alabama Politics This Week. We are, uh, if you you notice, we're we're kind of short here this week. We have we're, David and I have kind of just uh, decided to to get out of the way and, and let people that uh, you know like Terry Sewell and uh, and Doctor White uh, talk and uh, you know because really the hell do we know? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean we we can speculate a lot, but it's speculate uh, pontificate. Yeah. Uh, give opinions about things. But, Some might know. even say verbally defecate. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a lot of cating uh, going on. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's a uh, you know, I think both uh, both Terry Sewell and uh, and Doctor White have had get, shared some really really good information uh, with everybody, and yeah. um, and and so uh, I think it's it's a good it's a good podcast, it's a good informative podcast to have, and solid. You know, yeah, solid. solid, very, very solid, and uh, and and so we, you know, we we do what we can, we do what we do, and they do what they do, and they mm-hmm. their do is better than our do, and so that's just how our job really is just to tee it up with, with <laughs> jokes and nonsense yeah. and let them whack it out exactly, let yes, them whack it out, and then you know, and 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 get a birdie or an eagle out hey. of it, and then. It, you know, we just come along and do the same thing all over again. In terms that the Las Vegas mayor would understand, we are the control group. Uh, you yeah. know, we're. <laughs> did you see that nut? I mean, 
Uh, that, Lord have mercy. <laughs> she volunteered them to be the control group. Do uh, you think the people of Las Vegas understand that? I yeah, mean, it's, are they happy about that? Uh, well, how long, how long is she going to be mayor now? Who knows? I mean, but Nut in Georgia, I mean, he basically did the same thing without saying that. Yeah. You know, they're going to be the control group. Now yeah. it's, you know, I know uh, Doug Jones uh, this morning uh, in, in his little talk uh, on, on Facebook uh, said that, uh, you know, he thinks that they should start asking people when they go to the doctor if they've visited uh, Georgia or Florida or one of these other states that have relaxed uh, th- uh, things just to, so you can t- tell where people have been and, whether, and how you need to treat them. You know, I'm going to say this. I think you're right to chastise them because it's 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 the it's idiotic to just think we should open things up mm-hmm. immediately um but i will also say i can imagine it must be terrifying to be a mayor of a city especially one like las vegas where you see your revenue just mm-hmm. drop yep i mean just you know mm-hmm. it was probably in the millions yes you know and then it goes to almost zero. Mm-hmm. Well, it's be scary. Oh, it's, it has to be. But this, I think, and I think this is an important point mm-hmm. that that more people uh, on the the left side of things need to make and make make clear is that no one, no one is happy about this. All right. right. And when right. when when you convince a, a Kay Ivy to to say what she said earlier this week, mm-hmm. that is not a, a joyful moment. For, yeah. for people They're, you're not you're not celebrating this act of staying in and not going to work and, and people's businesses being hurt and the economy being hurt and things like that everyone is worried and scared to death about that That's okay right. Right. The, but what we don't want is for this to linger and continue and to harm more and more people uh, for a long period of time yeah. and and where our outrage is about this is is not that uh, that the Trump administration created this virus. It's that, or, or that, you know, that there was some means of him necessarily stopping it uh, from coming here. All right, because it was always going to come here. Our outrage is is that the fool sat over there for uh, two months and did nothing, uh, did very little, Poor and man. tried to tell people. Yeah. That this is nothing. Oh, 15 will be down to zero, and it'll just disappear like magic one day. Yeah. You know, and it was just so stupid when stupid you look back stuff, at it, yeah. and, and it's so insane. ridiculous. And, and, and that's what, and it's caused this. It's caused this prolonged period of time where we have to remain shut down because it's not safe to and do he, these things. And he in particular uh, makes me angry because the kinds of things he says, he doesn't even try to pretend to have any data or yeah. facts. He just talks. It's like the babbling of a of a of a child that hasn't yet learned to speak. I mean, that's what he's doing. What what is babbling? What amazes me even more than him? All right, because we've had idiots before, and there's been a lot of idiots well, running he's around. A class oh, he's a, he, he's listen. A class his a. his uh, his achievement to idiocy ratio <laughs> is off the charts. Okay, I mean, really, I I, I I give him that. But but what what. What gets me more than anything, yeah. what angers me more than anything, are these people around him oh, man. that know, yeah. that know that yeah. this is a fool and that this moron is getting people killed over here and they either sit idly by and say nothing or they actively participate in the foolishness even while they know it's, it's wrong and what they're they saying know, is wrong. They know better and they don't choose to do better and they're willing to sacrifice not only their credibility, but literally the lives of of millions of Americans. Yeah, yeah, there you're right, and it it 
they they have uh, they have sacrificed uh, uh, thousands and thousands of lives out of this just because of the idiocy uh, there and, and standing behind this this guy that that insisted on telling people when all the medical professionals around were saying, "Listen, you've got to take this seriously. It's coming here. We've got to do these things. We've got to take these steps. We've got to lock this down. We've got to do this and that." And this fool was out saying, "Oh, fifteen down to zero. We have one case. Oh, we're getting very much better." Uh, I mean, if so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then have these same people that support this guy lecture you on things. Uh, it's just uh, sometimes it's just like start punching people. Um, <laughs> speaking of punching people, uh, right wing note of the week time. Uh, and uh, this time we're we're very we're going local, uh, staying in the state. And we had a couple of options uh, on this one. Uh, and and we decided. uh <sighs> To go with John Merrill. I mean, we could have gone Mo Brooks mm-hmm. um, because Mo Brooks is really, he's, let's, let's be honest, Mo Brooks is the right wing nut every day. Okay. I mean, it's, he's really, yeah. he is the embodiment of, of your drunk relative at Thanksgiving every single day, just sitting around tossing out ideas like rocks falling in the ocean, cause sea it, levels to rise. It, it astounds me. Yeah. I've known Mo for a long time. Hmm. And I've actually been in situations with Mo where I have really appreciated um, who he is as a, uh, you know, in those settings, who Mm -hmm. he has been in those settings. Mm -hmm. But then there are times when Mo says things and I'm thinking he's got to be on crack or something. What is he, what is he talking (laughs) about? It's it's honest to God. It's it's, seriously, that's exactly what, if you've ever had, uh, and, and I think this is more of a white thing. All right. I think this happens more in in white families is I think every white family, a large family that gets together at the holidays, okay, Uh has a a fruitcake conservative relative. Uh All right. That just comes in and and they're gonna say something at the at the gathering Mm -hmm. there that is just off the wall bananas Mm -hmm. that they've heard on Fox News or from Alex Jones or from some somebody else. And and you're just everybody it either deteriorates into absolute chaos or everybody just (laughs) just like whatever man. It just goes about it acts like they didn't hear it. And and it's just that is who Mo Brooks is. He is the embodiment of your drunk relative at Thanksgiving saying whatever nonsense he just heard on TV. Uh, And so you know, it's hard to give that to him. But we, we went to uh, – he's not our nut. Our no, nut, it, despite no. his, let's open everything back up now because my white people council <laughs> gathered a group. <laughs> Mo Brooks gathered a group of people to represent the 5th District. Five counties in the 5th yeah, District. Yeah. Not a single person of color. No oh, shock to us who are black, though, Josh. I, I, we're not surprised by that. Well, I mean, uh, there, there's nobody. There, it's all white people. Yeah, but we're not. But black, I'm telling you, black people uh, in the 5th Congressional District are not shocked by this. I understand. This I, is who Mo has been. Mo has refused steadfastly to meet with groups of black people. You, you would think we, he would have. We're not surprised. You would think he would have stumbled upon an Asian business owner. I mean, you know, I mean, the Asian people employ a lot of people around here. You know, I, well, you know, and you know how they love money. Asians or or blacks or Hispanics or whomever. Mo doesn't venture. I have never seen Mo in his role as a public servant when it comes to the general public. Man. Now I've seen him in isolated cases. You know, I've been around him in isolated cases, yeah. and he's been perfectly fine. Mo's, you know, perfectly fine. 
But when it comes to public gatherings, mm-hmm. Mo doesn't venture outside yeah. his comfort zone. Well, he's been self-quarantining against intelligent people for a long, long time. So that's how he rolls. But uh, all right, but our, but our, he's, not our he's not our nut. Uh, although we've spent a lot of time talking about him, maybe we should consider him for next week. Or, but he's our honorable mention nut of the week. I guess <laughs> what we'll do. Uh, our our actual nut of the week is John Merrill, uh, which yeah. is. Uh, and well deserved too. Yeah, uh, Merrill this week, uh, for whatever reason, gets on Twitter, and he just is like it. It's a uh, just like loses his mind. It's a jaw dropper. Uh, I really mean, is. so yeah. so essentially, a person who uh, who works for an environmental group uh, was going after uh, Merrill a little bit on, online. It, it when I say going after, I, you know what? Let me let me take that completely back. All right, he didn't go after him. He asked Merrill a set of legitimate questions. And the legitimate questions revolved around uh, how to go about voting by mail or absentee ballot in Alabama if you're a poor person. Uh, because in order to vote uh, by mail here or by absentee ballot, you have to supply a copy of your driver's license when you mail this in. And so this person was asking, if I am an elderly person and I don't have, or a poor person and I don't have access mm-hmm. to a printer or a copier or a smartphone, how, how am I supposed to pr- supply you with this? You know, we're in the middle of a quarantine. How am I supposed to give you this information that you, I'm required to submit a ballot? And so Merrill's, Merrill's response to this uh, was people that have a hard time figuring out the answer to that question probably need to vote in person, which is flippant enough, okay? and and. Really ignorant. I mean, really ignorant of the people that that have extremely disrespectful. Yeah, that that are living a different life than than you are. It's, 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 yes, yeah. Yeah. and so then. Eddie Burkhalter, who works for the same organization that I do, uh, the Alabama Political Reporter, responded to that and said, the Alabama Secretary of State tweets this in response to a man's concern that to vote in the July 14th uh, absent uh, runoff, he left out the word runoff here, so that's what uh, I'm, why I'm pausing here, by absentee voters must have either a photocopier or a smartphone slash printer to mail in the copy of the photo ID with their application. To which Merrill then responds, when I come to your house and show you how to use your printer, I can also teach you how to tie your shoes and to tie your tie. I can also go with you to Walmart or Kinko's and make sure that you know how to get a copy of your ID made while you're buying cigarettes or alcohol. Yes, which does not, which does not address the question. The question is about, mm-hmm. as you alluded to, or really as you said, it's really about the economic status of people who yeah. are trying to vote. So yes. for Merrill to do this, you know, it's it's the height of uh, entitlement. Yeah, well, it's just it's the height of entitlement. It's a uh, it's a weird it's a weird thing with Merrill, and I, I don't and I don't understand it really why why he acts this way. I'll, I'll, I will say, pretty own brand for an Alabama politician to suggest you go to a store that's not been in business for the last twelve years to to get oh, your pinkles. yeah. <laughs> Uh, to, to get the thing required to vote. I got to tell you, we have a long history of that here as well. Maybe you could count the marbles in the jar too, uh, you know. Uh, but well, that's how we used to do it. Well, all right, so you got to name uh, name the uh, judges in all sixty seven counties. Yeah, uh, yeah. But so I know Merrill. Uh, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time around John Merrill, uh, and and I don't understand his. I don't understand this. I don't understand why he does this on on Twitter. I don't understand why he uh why it just 
I'll tell you my theory about it. My theory is, is that John Merrill knows that there is no good answer for this. And he knows that there is a problem within the law that we have here. And he knows that this is going to disenfranchise people. And he knows that there are certain people that aren't going to be able to do these things. And so his frustration over that, I'll I'll use the word frustration, uh, uh, over that is to his response to that frustration is to lash out at people uh, who are asking a legitimate question that he cannot run from. Uh, And uh, because I think that, had the conversations I have had with John Merrill uh, about the Alabama's voter ID law, uh, I believe he knows full well that this law is a bad law, that it does not do anything to protect the vote, the integrity of the vote in this state. Uh, I believe that he knows full well that our old voter ID laws, which were which included many, many more forms of identification, including electric bills and all these sorts of things where people could come in and show these things mm. to, to be able to vote. Ninety nine percent of people that went in there showed a photo ID uh, when you went in to vote. And But for the people who did not have one, given your electric bill was a perfect acceptable mm-hmm. means of identification because think about what the hell would go into the process for stealing that person's vote and showing up with their electric bill right. for God's sakes you know so, so your your position is that Merrill out of uh, out of moral frustration is lashing out out of out of out of this sense of moral I think he's torn. And I think he's conflicted. I, th- I do believe yeah. that he is con- okay. he That's is conflicted. Your, so, the, um, so this is this is you're saying this is the the righteous. I'm not saying that. I'm not. You don't have to be righteous. You don't have to be right. You, you okay, so you're saying think, this is the this is a man though who is is acting out of his frustration with being on the wrong side of an issue, mm-hmm. and so he's lashing out. Yeah, he has put out. I'm not. I'm, let, let me be clear. I'm not defending Merrill here necessarily. Okay. okay, what I'm what I'm saying is, is that he has put himself in a position where he has uh, he is now being forced forced uh, of his own will mm-hmm. to uphold and defend laws that he does not agree with. Which is why I have zero sympathy for. I'm him. not asking you to have sympathy, and it's why I think he's got to go. Oh, he is somebody who was cut from the same cloth that George Wallace was cut from, which is, which is, here's what I mean by that. Okay. I'm not saying that he's standing in the courthouse door necessarily, mm-hmm. but he's not too damn far from that, in my opinion. Well, but but here's what he's doing. He's saying that, he's basically saying, to, I'm going to be extremely provocative. Oh, here we go. He's basically saying, I'm not going to be out niggered, which Ooh. is what George Wallace said. Yeah. George Wallace said that. After being yeah. beaten in the 40s mm-hmm. by a progressive, yep. uh, I'm sorry, by a right-wing no. racist, mm-hmm. a right, yeah, somebody who would have been an ancestor of our right-wing nut jobs that we nominate mm-hmm. here uh, with, with a whole lot of racism mm-hmm. uh, 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 on top of that. You know, George Wallace ran as a progressive back in the 40s. Yes, he, did. he said, I'm not going to be out niggered again. Right. That is what, that is what John Merrill is basically doing. He's taking the position... That his political ambitions are more important than standing for principle, and he's not going to be out niggered in a sense again. I'll disagree a little okay. bit here. Okay, okay. so uh, I think where the where the key differences lie here is that is that Merrill is, is he didn't create the law. 
Uh, and I understand what I, know, I understand your pushback. Well, you don't have to defend it. It's not up, uh, not to you or whatever. I, I get all that, and I certainly agree that that Merrill, if he actually believed these things, um, that he could resign and and not and, and do something else. Okay, yeah, that, exactly. he, could, he could certainly do something else. Exactly. Uh, uh, but but I will say this, uh, and, and because you know, I, I don't want to be again. I don't want to be put in this position where I'm like defending John Merrill. I'm just saying. I think that this is what causes him to lash out on on so Twitter. So you want us to understand um, why he's doing? I mean, I just I, I all I did was say him. I think this is why he's doing it. Uh, yeah. You know, I think this is why he yeah. why he goes from being such a. I think that w- when most people talk to John Merrill, you find a very cordial, friendly, open guy who is willing to discuss issues with you, who who will sit down with you at any time, who will take your phone calls, uh, who will do all of these things. And yet on Twitter, he comes across as this right wing ultra troll that is willing to do all of the and say this complete and utter nonsensical things to, to people like this. And I think part of that is because he has no way to defend what he's doing here. And I think he knows it. And I think that what, where I would disagree in, in terms of Wallace and some uh, things like that is one he, he didn't create the laws that, that are there it, this were, these laws were thrust upon him by the, uh, the the state legislature and so it's his office's job at that point to implement them uh and enforce them make sure everybody's following them and i think to that end john merrill has been far better of a right-wing secretary of state than his compadres in other states all right there have been, there's a number of examples and one of the better examples is alabama's voter id law being allowed to stand by a fairly liberal federal court because of his office's efforts to implement it well you you and i both know um, that there are entities that would say that Alabama is no less of a voter suppressing state now no. than it was uh, in recent history. I don't so, disagree. So uh, let's let's stipulate to that, and yes. then also let's say this. You know, it doesn't matter to me that that John Merrill, when he has his foot on my neck, is telling <laughs> right. me what a nice guy I am and rubbing my head. And offering me a piece of candy, he still got his foot on me. But I don't necessarily think that's, and that's, I think that's where we disagree. I don't think it's John Merrill with his foot on your neck. All right, I I think it is. Stands for he represents the state. In this capacity, he represents the state, but his it's not his laws. It's not his laws. It's not his legislation. He's choosing. To enforce them and enact them. Uh, so I, listen, if, it, so, if so, he wants to be so, guilty so, by association, I, I can I can agree with that. I can well, agree. That's what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm saying and it's his the, choice. But I'm saying it's the it's, not, it's the state not legislature. He's not a victim here. It's the state legislature. I'm not claiming he's a victim. Right. I'm just saying that there. If we want to start assigning blame, yeah. I think that there are better people to assign blame to. Well, you know, once the law has passed. Mm-hmm. It's no longer okay. I grant you that the legislature is 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 the seed, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But at this point in time, we're dealing with the toxicity of the plant. But doesn't it matter a little bit that if you if you handed me this toxic plant and I did as much po- as possible to make sure you didn't get poisoned by it, isn't there some redeeming quality to that? And I think that's where. 
we disagree on John Merrill. I think that what he has been handed. Now, I'm not saying that John Merrill is a great Democratic uh, progressive or anything like that. Sure. But I do think in term uh, on, on the level of right wing crazies that we've elected in this state, John Merrill is way down at the bottom of that list because of his actions in office to mitigate the damage that is being done by some other people. And, and I see, think we don't, we don't even agree on that because I don't see him as much of a mitigator at all. But but I'll give you. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> you're just wrong. <laughs> but I'll give you this. I'll give you this. I'll give you this. Yes. He know I've seen him do this. He knows how to go in a black church and charm people. Mm-hmm. I've seen him do that. Yeah. And then and then uphold some of the very <laughs> laws and practices and court rulings. But what, what, okay, but what, 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 what would he do <laughs> other than resign? What would he do? I think that's a good place to start. Principled people often say, you know what? But then we would I'm be left with someone worse. What, well, what's the difference? Again, just because I, the guy I think, oh, be, there's some differences just now. Because the guy may be there's some differences. Maybe a little bit more nice or a little bit more. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not uh, talking about no, no. no. So, so I'm not talking about the, the, the those things that don't matter. I'm talking about actual tangible things. But right. in terms of the bottom line impact mm-hmm. on 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 the voters of Alabama, yes. especially those who've been historically disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. I see no difference. Oh, there's difference. What's there's the difference. difference. I, I, I'll give you some examples. Well, one uh, in the in the voter roll uh, purges uh, that have taken place. Other states have have handled it in which they have sent out mailers to houses, and if the mailer if the mailer didn't come back to them, the little card didn't come back, they they removed the people from the rolls. Merrill's office went a different route, which was deemed legal by the courts, in which they said uh, we're going to mail these things out. You have to send it back telling us that that person no longer lives there or has passed away or whatever. Then we'll remove them from the rolls. It's a pretty key difference there. And I think that a, a lesser person uh, who was not trying, who was working within the law because the legislature gave him free will to do whatever he wanted to in that regard, he could have taken it that step and he did not, where some other people in some other states did. So it's the same way, same way with, the, with the voter ID laws right here. I think that the way they have gone about implementing it and trying to make sure that people have an opportunity to get a free ID – uh, and trying to make sure, and, and, and people can scoff at the mobile units and all that. And I, I agree, they have not been as effective as they should be. But, but I think that the effort there to get people an ID to get them out to vote has been there, and I think a court recognized that as well. And I think that that while the law is wrong, while what is being done with the law is wrong, and we all agree on that, I, th- I have a problem putting Merrill in the same category as that because he has actually worked to mitigate the damage of those two laws. I'll give you point number two. I don't give you point number one. I think I think I think there is there is uh, there are arguments out there that are valid that challenge the whole idea uh, about whether or not votes are still being suppressed. In Alabama, they're hundred percent being suppressed. Yeah, hundred percent. But having said that, I'll give you number two. I think number two is a good point. And, and I really I, hate I, that I've had to defend Will Haynesworth one week, <laughs> John Merrill the next. And I don't understand what's happening. This is nonsense. It's your Twilight Zone, baby. It ain't mine. <laughs> it ain't mine. And I wrote something good about Kay Ivey this week. Yeah, I don't know what's happening. I'm going to have to join the NRA before it's all watch, over with. We're going to have to watch you. I know. You, yeah. I know. Getting conservative in your old age. <sighs> right. Well, listen. Stay off my lawn. All right. All right. Listen, we got to get out of here. That's uh, right, we. 
Uh, before I defend somebody else. <laughs> next year, we oh, tell them wow. we put a great president Trump. Oh, man, me and Mo Brooks will be having lunch at Jack's next week. <laughs> God sakes. Let me tell you, man. There's going to be a lot of old white men groups that got some real stuff to complain about as soon as this thing's lifted. <laughs> All right. We're going we're gonna to get out of here. Uh, this is hopefully live in your day. And listen, y'all can be mad at me. Uh, I don't... I know it's coming. All right. I'm learning to liven up the coronavirus shuffle we're doing. Here. Yeah. All right. Good week. Uh, thanks to Chip. Thanks to Terry Sewell. Yes. Thanks to uh, Dr. Sure. Ron White. Uh, and uh, until next week, see you guys. Take it easy.